Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. And what a big week it's been. Politics in Australia is getting very messy. Even the Australian's editor-at-large, my friend Paul Kelly, who isn't usually given to hyperbole, says the government is in crisis. So I rang him up and asked him, please explain. The All Ordinaries broke through with 6,000, so I asked Shane Oliver of AMP Capital to tell us whether he'd be worried. Retail sales figures came out today, so I asked Stephen Kukulis to take us through them. And also today, the iPhone X is finally being released to eager, queuing fans. Dr Christine Satchel, Senior Research Fellow at Queensland University of Technology, tells us whether it's a big deal or not. Now I'm joined by Paul Kelly, who is the editor-at-large for The Australian. Well, Paul, you wrote a pretty strong piece this week saying that the government is facing a deepening crisis. Um, I mean, they haven't lost the numbers, but you you seem to be suggesting that it's really uh, a political crisis about um, about how it, how it looks, really, I suppose. But is, is there more to it than that? I think the Turnbull government does face a political crisis, and it's got different dimensions. Um, uh, first of all, the government has lost the great advantage of incumbency, which is setting the agenda. Uh, the agenda of politics these days, particularly in the last few weeks, and I think over the next few weeks, will be set by the government's opponents. And essentially that agenda is about Malcolm Turnbull's problems and the problems of his government. And those problems have been accentuated by the dual citizenship crisis. We thought the High Court had resolved the issue, which um, came with its decision uh, last Friday, leading to the by-election for Barnaby Joyce in New England. The good news there for the government is that Barnaby Joyce looks to be in a strong position to win that by-election. But the resignation of the President of the Senate, Stephen Parry, because he's uh, a British citizen, has demonstrated that the High Court decision has not resolved the political problem for the government and the nightmare, the nightmare facing the government is there might be more government MPs who are caught in the dual citizenship trap. Uh, and if they are disclosed, that could lead to further by-elections. So this is a most unsettling time for Malcolm Turnbull. Do you think they'll be forced to do a, an audit, as some people are called, calling for? The government and the Labor Party are most resistant to an audit. They argue that the onus here is on people who seek to demonstrate that an MP is in fact a foreign citizen and that it would not be the right approach at the moment to have the entire parliament having to declare their credentials. The government is very strong on this issue and of course, this is reinforced by the sense of self-interest because, as I said, if there were further coalition MPs revealed to be dual citizens, then if they're in the lower house, uh, that means uh, automatic um, uh, resignation from the parliament and an automatic by-election. There are traps, of course, for both sides, Labor as well as the government, but so far, it seems the majority of concerns seem to reside within the coalition, although I don't rule out that Labor MPs could also be caught. You, you, you wrote a sentence uh, saying, think of a person stumbling in a dark room not knowing what might what mishap might befall them. 
And um, and this morning we find that Christopher Pine um, is uh, getting under a push from the Liberals, South Australian Liberals, for an investigation into him. Goodness gracious. Well, you see, this is one of the phenomenons when a government comes under pressure. There is certainly tension at the moment between the Liberals and the Nationals, between the coalition partners on a number of issues. There's a tension inside the government between the Liberal wing of the party and the conservative wing of the party and there's tension surrounding individuals and this is now focusing very much on Christopher Pine. Pine is a very important member of the government. He's the leader of the house. He plays a really important role in tactical decisions but there's a lot of animosity to Christopher Pine within the parliamentary party and within quite high ranks of the parliamentary party And the fact that we're now seeing stories being leaked against Pine, which relate to things that he did some time ago, the allegation being uh, that he uh, encouraged uh, someone to run against uh, an endorsed Liberal candidate. This is is damaging material, which reflects the profound factionalisation of the Liberal Party in South Australia. Uh, and, of course, the, the Pine himself is under pressure with a redistribution, uh, which might uh, mean that he will be seeking to find another seat. And meanwhile, Tony Abbott uh, won't shut up. He's made another speech in New York uh, and written a piece for The Australian, which I presume is the basic contents of the speech, in which he uh, said that the same-sex marriage debate has created a new uh, conservative uh, kind of force in Australia. And I think he I think he mentioned something like 40% of the electorate. I mean, do you think he's... Uh, anywhere near right? Well, look, the point to make about Tony Abbott is that that Tony Abbott is not any threat to Malcolm Turnbull in his parliament as Prime Minister. Uh, Tony Abbott has very little support inside the Parliamentary Liberal Party to return to the leadership. That's not a factor. That won't happen. And Tony Abbott knows that. What Tony Abbott is doing is Tony Abbott is the banner carrier for the conservative wing of the party. And he's doing that both in this parliament, but the point I'd make is that Tony Abbott is going to be there in the next parliament. And if the Liberal Party goes into opposition, I think there's going to be a profound battle inside the party about what went wrong and what should have happened. And Tony Abbott is positioning himself uh, for that. His essential argument all along the line in terms of the comments he made this week, the comments he's made earlier, and what he's going to say in the future is he purports to be the authentic leader of the conservative wing of the party, essentially saying that Malcolm Turnbull has misinterpreted the nature of the Liberal Party and is doomed to defeat. That's essentially um, the Abbott agenda here. I think he probably exaggerates the number of uh, uh, people who might vote no in the same-sex plebiscite. We'll have to wait and and see what happens on that. Uh, But uh, Abbott is a permanent presence and he's a permanent banner carrier for the Conservatives. Do you think that uh, Turnbull is doomed to defeat? I mean, I I think you also mentioned that you thought that he wouldn't actually last out the full term. Well, he's been behind in the polls for a long period of time. So 
recovery for Malcolm Turnbull to win the next election will be very difficult, and that is privately acknowledged by senior figures in the government. I don't rule out that he could recover and win the next election. I think that Bill Shorten is not a strong Labor leader, but government weaknesses have made Shorten look more impressive than what he actually is. Uh, The point I was making this week, however, is that with all these uncertainties, particularly surrounding MPs, we can't be sure the parliament will run full term. Turnbull's strategy is a full-term parliament. That means an election uh, late in 2018 or even in 2019 to give himself sufficient time to recover. But it may well be that he becomes hostage to events and um, various issues could arise, which mean that the election is actually held sooner. We can't be we can't be certain about that. I guess the final point I'd make about Turnbull is while he's doing badly in the polls, my view is that any prospect of a change of prime minister improving the government's position, is extremely remote. I don't think that's actually a viable option. Joining me now is Shane Oliver, Chief Economist for AMP Capital. Well, uh, Shane, um, uh, the All Honorees broke through 6,000 this week, which is usually, has well recently been the point at which it starts going down again. So do you think there's anything to worry about just about 6,000? Well, of course, the, those sorts of round numbers create a lot of interest. And some people call it roundophobia, obsession with round numbers. But um, the 6,000 uh, break was quite significant because it has tried to get through that level a few times the last few years. And the fact that it has actually broken through it um, could be a positive sign technically. Also interesting that it got through the 6,000 level on the 10-year anniversary from its peak, which, uh, of course, was November the 1st. 2007 when it hit 6,854. So we've got a long way to go to get back to those highs. In the very short term, there is a bit of risk around the market because the US share market's gone up a a long, long way recently and gone a long way almost a year now without a 5% correction. So there is that that short-term risk that the US market could have a bit of a fall dragging our market down. But Against that, though, if you take a six to 12 month view on markets, the outlook still looks reasonably positive because the environment globally is still one of improvement that's feeding through to stronger profits at a time when inflation is still low and interest rates are low. And that sort of sweet spot combination is usually a good one for share markets. But, um, and that should help our market on a six to 12 month view. But that said, I still see our market being an, a relative underperformer. Um, but on a 12-month view, I still see more upside. It's a, it, our market has had a pretty good October. It's not just that it's gone through 6,000, but it's been a reasonable month. And the, I think the um, market PE has gone up to in the mid-15s. So it's a bit elevated from uh, sort of longer-term averages. Any concerns about that? There is a bit of a concern on that front. The Ford PE, when I last looked at it uh, this morning, in fact, was around, as you say, around 15.5 times, which is a bit above the long-term average, which is about 14 times. Then again, if you look at overseas markets, they're all, well, many of them are a little bit elevated in terms of PE comparisons, which is, which is um, on the one hand, it does flash a warning sign. On the other hand, though, you could argue, well, inflation is low, interest rates are low, bond yields are still low, and in that context, you can still justify 
a slightly higher than normal price to earnings multiple. But but at the end of the day, we do need to see the the earnings come through. Um, so valuations, there's no longer any any fat left there. The market's no longer cheap on that front. We do need to see the earnings growth coming through, and that I think is the big issue for our market over the next 12 months. The big lift we saw through the last financial year for resources stocks is behind us. The iron ore price is just wallowing around. Um, so we're probably not going to see another huge lift for the resources stocks over the next 12 months or this this current financial year. And meantime, underlying growth in the economy is still relatively constrained compared to what you're seeing in other countries. And profit growth for the industrials probably hovering around 5%. Um, so we probably will see earnings growth, but by global standards, I think it's going to be re- re- going, to, going to remain relatively subdued. And that raises the question of, I mean, uh, the question of why our market's been underperforming. And it's one of the most common questions I get is, you know, how come our market has so substantially underperformed the US, particularly over the last 12 months or, you know, this year, and um, uh, which it clearly has. What's your perspective on that? Well, it's, it's well and truly underperformed. Just, just to give you an example, it's had a great October, and um, so far, so good in November. But year to date, it's only risen 4.8%, less than 5%. Japan's up 17%. Europe's up 12%. The US is up 15%. That's the S&P 500 in the US. And China, China's shares are up nearly 21%. Um, so it's, but it's not just this year. Even after, over the last five years, um, global shares on average have returned something like or something close to 14% per annum. Um, even more if you allow for the fall in the value of the Aussie dollar, whereas the Aussie share market over the last five years has been good, but only returned 10%, and that's a total return even when you allow for dividends. Our market has underperformed global markets. So I think there's several reasons for that. One is you know, people, people often make the comparison back to the 2007 high, which was November the 1st, uh, 2007, and our market hit uh, above 68.50. Um, but that was a very high high. We'd, uh, we had a brief fall through the tech wreck, but it was only down about 20%. And then we sort of took off, propelled, of course, by good economic growth in Australia, but more importantly, the commodity boom at the time. Whereas the US market, global shares generally, they, they really just spun their wheels through last decade. So we, we'd gone to a very elevated level. So that hurdle is much greater for Australia and uh, much easier for the US to get, get through that which they did in 2013, Global Shares did it in 2014, whereas we're still waiting. It's just, it's just that the hurdle was a lot greater for Australia because we came off a much higher higher point. Then, of course, uh, you know, since uh, 2011, we've had the slumping commodity prices. Uh, the big mining stocks, they're well down on their, on their previous highs. Um, we've had uh, the US and Europe and Japan all benefiting from uh, easy money, zero interest rates, money printing, whereas we've had much tighter monetary policy and we haven't had any money printing. And then, of course, uh, you know, the Aussie dollar sort of pushed through a, to 110 cents uh, earlier this decade. And the lagged effect of that is still sort of working through the economy to some degree, constraining profits here. Um, so they're the, they're the main factors, I think. You could argue it's not quite as bad if you add in the dividends, um, at least the All Lords Accumulation Index, um, which allows for dividends, has gone to a new record high. Um, but the market, even with dividends, has still underperformed global shares, and they're, they're the main reasons, Under, um, I, uh, I think. Underperformance is often followed by a period of outperformance or whatever the markets might be. Do you think there's any reason to suppose that might happen this time? There will be. It's just a question of when it will come. Um, 
we certainly that uh, as you refer to uh, there we certainly have had that over the last uh, decade or so we outperformed up until 2007 we've underperformed since um, and often in technical terms they call that mean reversion that you've had a period of outperformance exactly. you then have a period of underperformance um, are we at a point yet where we're going to mean reverse um, I, I'm not so confident that we are at some point out there we will and we had a bit of a catch-up over the last month but in the fundamental sense I still see the Australian economy being a relative underperformer um, compared to what it has been in the past and, and probably compared to many markets or many economies internationally, and that's going to weigh on profits in Australia um, for some time to come. So, yeah, eventually this will turn around. You don't want to give up on Australian shares. They pay good dividends, um, and the returns will probably be okay. But um, are we going to go back to a period where you can just focus on Australian shares, not worry about global shares, because the Aussie market will be the place to be? I think that's still some time away. Joining me now is Stephen Kukoulos from Market Economics. Uh, Stephen, um, retail sales out this morning, uh, it was completely flat, zero. Is that bad? Zero growth. And look, the interesting thing, Alan, is that it comes after a couple of months where there had been... Uh, falls of 0.2 and 0.5% respectively. So we've got, in nominal terms, retail spending trending down. The one saving grace for the retail sector, if we can call it that, is that we do know that prices are being cut. The the so-called price deflator, which measures inflation specifically in the retail sector, actually fell in the September quarter. So that in volume terms, yeah, the amount of goods that were purchased in the retail sector actually rose, but it was only a puny 0.1%. But basically, the retail sector is doing it very tough. Well, that's right. I mean, deflation is not good for them, that's for sure. No, and this is before Amazon have opened their doors too. So the interesting thing uh, for the lead into Christmas, that uh, time when retailers sell about a third of their product normally in that couple of month period, is what effect are these, um, you know, these big competitors going to mean in terms of pricing? So I think we can expect more discounting as people just try to hang on to their market share. So what does it tell you about the economy overall at the moment? Yeah, well... Gee, we've got this schizophrenic economy, I think. There's pockets of very good news. The uh, jobs numbers have been remarkably and wonderfully strong. We've got the various measures of business sentiment and business confidence doing very well. So the business sector is feeling, you know, pretty good. And even uh, earlier in the week, we saw the international trade numbers confirming that export values are, are, are chugging along at a very healthy growth rate. So there's that part of the economy that is doing well, but then you throw in things like the retail sector, the softening in the housing market. We know that house prices are cooling. You know, it's, it's early days, so we don't want to be too excited and say we're heading for a bursting of the house price bubble, heaven forbid. But, um, you know, but there's clearly a cooling occurring in the housing market. So you've got weakness in consumer spending. Wages are still dead. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we saw the CPI, the inflation numbers, confirming that inflation is very, very low. So we've got this picture as we get into the end of the year where the economy it's still doing okay you know it, it, it's moderately growing and with low inflation but it's certainly not strong so where do you sit on uh, interest rates next year 
Look, I'm one of these people, and I heard you and James chatting in your cafe yesterday. <laughs> um, um, and look, I still think that the RBA could be cutting rates. You know, if you look at inflation, you look at wages, you look at the spare capacity that uh, RBA Deputy Governor Guy DeBell was talking about in one of his speeches earlier this week, that there's a lot of spare capacity in the labour market, even though we've had some, you know, as we are saying just a second ago, some really nice job creation numbers. Uh, so I think that when we get into the new year, uh, if we do get another quarter or two of these sorts of retail sales numbers that we saw today, if we get another quarter or two where the competitors like Amazon are pushing inflation lower still, that the RBA just might want to have a bit of a, a stock take on things, have a look at the Aussie dollar, which is you know, remarkably resilient in the you know, that upper part of the 70 cent region, 77, 78 thereabouts. So I still think there's a very good chance that we could see a cut. But, um, you know, the RBA are very, very stubborn. They've got their eye on financial stability and the housing boom and bust and all these other things that are that are in their thinking. So, look, the jury's out and maybe good old Bill Evans at Westpac will be right and we'll have another, gosh, year, 18 months where rates are on hold. Be a big, big call for them to cut rates uh, now that the Bank of England has uh, hiked for the first time in 10 years. Yeah, well, yes, we saw that last night, and of course that follows obviously the Fed, and the new Fed chairperson is going to be uh, well. They're saying he's he's a little bit dovish, but obviously he's got to keep hiking rates there. But we've also had the Bank of Canada um, hiking on two occasions over the last uh, four or five months. So um, you've got to remember though that they were coming from or well, the UK anyway. The Bank of England was from coming from zero point two five percent cash rate and a. I think it was £435 billion pounds of quantitative easing. So they're coming from a really easy stance of monetary policy, whereas we've still got our cash rate at one5 But, yeah, look, the jury's out on this sort of thing. And let's just have a look at how the inflation and the unemployment numbers play out. They're, the, they're going to be the drivers with a careful watch also on the house price cycle. Just speaking of the Fed, the new Fed chair, Jerome Powell, did you, did you notice that he is the first... Um, uh, chair, Fed chair without a PhD in economics for about three decades. Yes, and a lawyer to boot. Gosh, um, away He's from a lawyer. Too unkind, Not an economist. Maybe that's what you need. Yeah, that's right. Oh, it's a massive advantage. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, indeed, you, uh, a little too much knowledge can be a little bad thing. And of course, you've got to remember that a lot of these positions you're as good as the, the wonderful staff that you've got working for you. And the Fed, of course, is, um, in my view, handled the GFC issues re reasonably well. It's one of those ones you're... You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. They were, they were confronting a horrid period of, you know, deflation, unemployment at double-digit levels, banks basically folding. So, you know, you needed to throw everything at it. And they sort of did. And now we've got this position where the US economy is actually looking great. And as we we're just touching on, they are progressively hiking rates, albeit at a slow pace. And I think Powell will, um, you know, when he takes over in February, will continue to just... Uh, Look at the data, look at the inflation rate, look at the labour market indicators, just like any other central bank, and, and adjust rates accordingly. I'm joined now by Dr Christine Satchwell, who is a researcher for QUT and has a bunch of other things uh, to do with ubiquitous computing and uh, smartphones. So they're, uh, as we speak, lining up for iPhone 10s. Apparently people are paying... Well, it's a big one. They're paying, paying people 300 bucks to join, stand in the queue, and it's going to take months oh, to get one. Um, don't you just love the Apple fandom culture? It's still alive and well, and I think that's great. I do. I love the way people can worship the mobile phone artifact. I think that's really cool. Um, 
However, um, very big price point on this one. Well, it doesn't Looking seem to. It, it doesn't seem to be stopping the queues. Well, perhaps it's enticing the queues. Who knows? Maybe it's an excellent marketing ploy. If it's expensive, it must be better. I must say, I can't wait to get my hands on one. I haven't yet, so it's worked on me anyway. <laughs> but do you think that, apart from the fandom aspect of it, um, do you think it is a big deal in technology? Yes. Yes, and I rarely say this because normally I find that, you know, Apple just rolls out incrementally every new iPhone I always report on. And it's rare that I say anything else besides the fact that Apple does do a very good job incrementally updating each handset and the functionality that goes with it so as not to alienate users. So it's nice for once to say something slightly different, which is, yeah, I think this is kind of a big deal. It feels, it looks like you've got a new technology. It's like a, a concept technology. It feels kind of new and exciting and just slightly different to what we know, even if it's just small things. Yeah, it feels kind of different. It feels kind of cool. It feels kind of new, and I like that. It's been a long time since Apple's done that. I mean, what Apple did with the iPhone is turn, basically turned internet access to the phone so that now most people um, access the internet, use the internet via the phone. Now, do you think that the uh, iPhone ten will kind of further advance that? Look, no, no, no. I don't think the iPhone 10 is offering anything in the way of the steps of leaps and bounds that we've seen with previous handsets who truly provided us with a whole new paradigm of living our lives in terms of, you know, spontaneity and scheduling and, you know, just it really offered something so different. I think there's very little now the phone can do to be such a big leap as what it, what earlier handsets did. But what I like about it is just the feel, it kind of feels a bit different. There's no home button, for example. So I think we're getting kind of to the saturation point with phones. There's only so much more functionality we can throw, put into one. It can only converge so much. And I think we've pretty much hit that level. So it's remarkable, really, that that can be done to make it feel different at all. And I just think it does, when you have it, when you sort of, I've, I've held on and everything, when you have it in your hand, it does feel different. Uh, the main it's like thing- a lack of a home button, like just... A really like quite a big leap, for which, which is un- unusual for Apple, who normally just go up incrementally. And the other leap is the facial recognition. How big a deal is that? Yeah, well, facial recognition is a really interesting one. And um, there was an absolutely disastrous um, video that went around uh, very early on back in the day as I... Um, I think it was, look, I won't name the company, but the problem with their facial recognition software, because it was all developed by white men in Silicon Valley, was that it would only recognize basically the faces of white males. It had no algorithm in place to help it represent, uh, recognize any minority groups. So let's hope that Apple's, of course, moved on from that disastrous, some of the disastrous first forays into facial recognition. And yeah, I think it's a great idea. There's a lot of concern about facial recognitions by a lot of women out there who are wondering what happens if they have different makeup on, different hairstyles on. Like, will they actually be recognised by their artefact? Which is fair enough. Good point. It's a fair enough question. Yeah, so it'd be really bad if, you know, someone... There's a really good article about who went and had um, some facial enhancement Botox or something like that, and her her phone didn't know who she was after that. (laughs) I know, the 21st century problem, seriously, it's quite quite an interesting one. My phone (laughs) thinks I'm an imposter. So, yeah, so there's, there's, in the (laughs) all these new technologies are not without their problems, which, of course, is what makes it such a fascinating area to work in, because it often goes horribly wrong, and it's always interesting when it does. But, uh, yeah, so I'll be interested to see the facial recognition success or fail thereof. Well, I mean, leaving leaving aside those problems that you raise, I mean, wh- one of the things that Apple has always done is kind of bring 
um, new technologies to mainstream and they've kind of had a much broader application as a result of what uh, Apple has done. Do you think that facial recognition will now, as a result of uh, iPhone X, become much more ubiquitous? Uh, probably. Well, I mean, it's already... I think we need to be careful with facial recognition software because it has a lot of implications in terms of privacy, which also makes it wonderful in the in the area of like protecting security and things like that. And I know facial recognition software is primarily used in the security industry to try and, you know, keep us safe and biometrics in general, recognising a human and being able to, you know, allow or not allow them into certain spaces, existing prisons and all sorts of things. So it's, I don't know, it, it really is one that's just loaded with potential privacy issues when used in a social media context. Well, I suppose I was, I, was, I was wondering, I mean, if we all get used to unlocking our phone by just looking at it and having our face recognised, then maybe we'll just get used to it being um, applied all over the place. Yeah, and then once we have that reality, if we entered a dystopian 1984 Orwellian kind of world without realising it, of which we can no longer kind of um, undo ourselves from. So I think we need to think critically about how today's design decisions can impact on tomorrow's everyday life. Yes, but it's sneaking up on us, isn't it, Christine? It is sneaking up on us, but that's why I always do encourage people to, you know, to, to think critically. As designers, we do need to think critically about what we design into technology, but it is sneaking up on us. And for the most part, I see a very utopian uh, future. I love technology. I love everything that it brings us. It's certainly personal safety, you know, just convenience. There's so much that's great about it. But what's interesting is when this technology is linked with all the other, the internet of things. So our phone is linked with our environment and, and you know, the access to our house and the you know, things like that, when everything, all the devices talk to each other, that will be another interesting area to see how the phones interact with them and how, when phones don't work, and let's face it, they don't always work. There's many fails. What, what will the reality of that be? And tomorrow is 93 years since the death of Gabriel Foray the great 19th century French composer who died in 1924, aged 79, having left a wonderful body of gorgeous romantic music. Here's a piece he wrote called After a Dream for piano and cello, and I think you'll agree it's the sort of music that goes so well with 19th century French Impressionist painting. Funny about that. That's it for Talking Finance. You can share your thoughts by emailing hello at theconstantinvestor.com and I'd love to hear from you. I'm Alan Kohler. Have a constant week.